Let me add my uh, word of welcome to you all here this morning, especially to those who are uh, visiting with us. It's wonderful to have you here. Um, wonderful to have the children uh, lead us in singing that way. And boys and girls, um, I'm going to ask you to try and uh, sit still and be nice and quiet for a little while while I uh, give a talk to the grown-ups. And maybe if you sit still and listen, you might get something from it too. So um, here we go. The Bible tells us that uh, all of the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. Whatever significance we might place on Christmas, above all things, it's a celebration of the fact that God not only makes promises, but he always keeps his promises. Every promise that you read in the Old Testament finds its fulfillment in Jesus or in him is a guarantee of future fulfillment because of what Jesus has done by coming for us and laying down his life for us. The promise that I want to focus on this morning is the very first promise that occurs in the Bible and it's represented by these two women, Eve and Mary. The promise is in Genesis 3.15 Uh, And it's it's in bold in your newsletter. Um, The offspring of the woman will bruise or will crush the head of the serpent. I should mention that uh, all the passages that we've read so far and the ones that I'll be reading are all printed out there in your newsletter if you wish to follow along. Now, many people don't like this early part of the Bible because it speaks... Uh, in negative terms about humanity. And it presents a God who might seem to be always ready to punish us for our sin. Can a God who pronounces a curse really be a God of love? However, if we think about it for a moment, if we don't have God, and not just any God, but the God that's spoken of in these verses, then the outlook of humanity is incredibly bleak. That passage in Genesis chapter 3 is an accurate description of the way that things are. And without God, then we're stuck with the world and with life just as it is because that's the way it's always been and that's the way it will always be. If everything just started with a big bang and ever since has been filled with meaningless Uh, violence across a vast impersonal expanse of the universe then we're just a pointless blip in an otherwise lifeless universe we have no basis then for calling anything good or evil right or wrong beautiful or ugly whether we like it or not we're stuck with this world with its death and violence and we're stuck with our humanity with all of its pain and it's uh, often it's seeming pointlessness we're born we live we die and the only hope is that we might minimize our pain and maximize our comfort in our brief journey but on the other hand if we believe in the God who speaks these words 
then not only do we have an explanation for why the world is the way it is, but we have a firm reason for hope that there's actually a good future, both for this world and for anyone who was in a right relationship with this God. The first woman and man faced consequences for refusing to live and to receive from God. In other words, for their sin. They refused to obey his command to rule the earth with truth and love for the glory of God. Instead, they listened to the word of the devil represented by the serpent. His word tells us to live for our own glory in selfishness instead of in love. And so there's pain. There's pain in fractured relationships with God and fractured relationships with one another. There's pain in the most fundamental of human thriving, the bearing and raising of children. There'll be pain. And the most basic need of putting food in our stomachs, there'll be pain and suffering. And as we try to manage these things, we're working against the clock. We have bodies that are subject to age and weakness and disease and eventually death. No matter how great our efforts, the grave, it seems, will always win. Now, while God has the right to judge us for our sin, these things mentioned in Genesis 3, they're not just mere punitive judgments, as if they're sent by a malicious God whose feelings have been hurt by his creatures. Justice would have demanded that the human race be destroyed the moment they sinned. But he didn't. These things, the pain, the suffering, the difficulties of this world, they're constant reminders to us that this world and we are not the way that we should be. They're actually the actions of a gracious and loving God who forces us to long for something better, to hope for something more beyond the grave. God who makes us realise that the universe isn't meaningless, but it's been given a goal, it's been given a destiny by God who's never given up on his plan. And the fact that these things in our lives are always limited shows us that he's the God who desires to see mercy triumph over judgment. He gives us a longing, a longing to be who we should be, to be washed clean of all of our failures and all of our evil. Now, did you notice that before God addressed the woman and the man, he addressed the serpent who represented the devil? It's there in verses 14 and 15. There he asserts his commitment to deal with the problem of sin and evil and suffering by pronouncing a curse on him and declaring that eventually he'll be destroyed. And he asserts his commitment to the human race made in his image, both that evil will eventually be destroyed, but also that it will be a human being an offspring of the woman who will do the crushing of the serpent's head. So the first man and the first woman, they look into 
their future with a mixture of sorrow, but also hope. The woman is called Eve. That name means life giver, because she will be the mother of all living. All of her children will inherit the curse of sin and death, yet there's still the guarantee that the human race is not finished, because one of Eve's sons will be the Redeemer. Peter, one of the New Testament writers, wrote, Adam was formed first, then Eve. Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor, yet she will be saved through childbearing. Now that's not saying that a woman having a baby makes her right with God, but it's saying that all that happens through Eve's actions will be undone, will be reversed through the simple event of a child being born, the promised offspring. The main story of the Bible begins with another man and woman, Abraham and Sarah. They were miraculously given a son, even though they were both very old and had not had any children. And from that point onwards, the Bible contains repeated stories like this that point forward to the coming of this offspring. Women and men looking for signs that God was being true to his promise. Infertile women are given children against all odds. Mothers and fathers receive their sons back from the brink of certain death. They're all able to look forward to the next generation with hope. And they're all wondering, maybe, maybe my son will be the promised offspring. And through all of these stories in the Bible, God keeps reiterating this promise. He says things like this, The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Or this one, to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And so we come to the second woman, Mary. Now there are many stereotypes of Mary, some religious some folklore, but we see from this particular account in Luke that Mary was just a regular woman, nothing special, nothing particularly holy or pure. She's addressed by the angel as favoured one, literally graced one. And her response is just like everyone else in the Bible who has a heavenly encounter She's greatly troubled because she doesn't consider herself worthy to be visited by an angel. So she has to be told, do not be afraid, not because she's worthy, but because she's told, you have found favour, grace, with God. That term, found favour with God, is a term that's used in the Bible for those whom God chooses despite their unworthiness. See, God takes delight in choosing unworthy and unable people so that we may see that all that he does is for the praise of his glory 
not so we can praise our glory. Verse 32 is a sentence that every Jewish woman longed to hear, that her son was the one, the son of God, the promised king in the line of David, the ruler who will reign forever. How will this be, she asked, since I'm a virgin, but is anything impossible for God, the one who brought the entire universe into being out of nothing? It's as if God is saying, you may be able to explain how an elderly woman can have a child or how a son can be saved at the last minute from certain death, but try to explain this one, a virgin conceiving and giving birth to a child. So all those other events just foreshadow this one. How would you respond if you were visited by an angel? Or more pertinently, how might others respond if you said to them that you had been visited by an angel? Why should we believe Mary? But we don't just have Mary's word. What the angel told her, that her relative Elizabeth was also pregnant turned out to be true. And then Elizabeth's child jumping in the womb was a sign that Mary was indeed, as Elizabeth said, the mother of my Lord, before Mary had said anything to her. See how in Mary's song, she uses twice this word servant, once at the start in 48 and once at the end in 54. The first is a reference to herself and it's her initial reason for bursting into song. Who is she that God would choose her for the event that would change the world and humanity forever? Mary, an otherwise unknown girl from the back blocks of Galilee. That's why she realised... From now on, all generations will call me blessed. Not because of a quality in herself that made her blessed, but because he who is mighty has done great things for me. This word blessed is the word that's used by Jesus many times over and over in his famous Sermon on the Mount, in which he announces that the order and the hierarchies of this world are going to be turned upside down by the arrival of the kingdom of God. Those who mourn will be comforted. Those who are meek will inherit the earth. Those who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness will be filled. Mary has received a similar revelation by realising that in her womb is this offspring of Eve, the one who will crush the head of the serpent, and restore peace and truth and justice. And so she sings, the proud are scattered in the thoughts of their minds. The mighty are removed from their high thrones. The rich are sent away empty. But the humiliated are exalted. The hungry are filled with good things. God has said yes to his promises in Jesus by the simple fact that the eternal Son of God who sits on the high throne of heaven voluntarily humbled himself 
born as a frail, helpless baby. For the first year or so of his human life, the eternal Son of God was entirely dependent upon Mary, his mother, for his survival. He needed her to keep him warm and clean and fed and safe from danger. See, our God turns the power structures of this world upside down, not from a place of power, but from a place of weakness. Humility is lifted up as the greatest of virtues, not in contrast to God, but because by his very nature, God is humble. The reformer Martin Luther wrote, God feeds the whole world through a babe nursing at Mary's breast. The second servant reference in verse 54 is a reference to the people of Israel. Just as he chooses individuals and sovereignly puts his grace upon them, so too he chose Israel, not because they were special, but because of his determination to keep his promise to Eve. They were the Lord's servant because they were a priestly people. They were called to be a light to the nations. But now this calling will be rolled into one person who will not only be the servant of the Lord, but will also humbly serve us as he lays down his life and goes to the cross for us. So Mary knows this isn't just about her and her situation. Sure, she was blessed, and she probably had no idea that in the future millions of people would virtually make her an idol. Instead, Mary points us away from herself and to the Father's goal of redemption. So Mary now stands here as a daughter of Eve, through whom the promised offspring would come and would undo all the work of the devil. Jesus will be the final Adam. He'll bring about the great reversal, the turning upside down of everything. In Genesis, the woman was taken out of the man and became an instrument through which sin and death entered the world. But now the Son of God has been born of a woman. And he is the one in whom sin and death will be done away with forever. Now we can look at this story from a distance. It's rehearsed for us every Christmas and we may lose a sense of wonder over it. Well, Mary didn't have that option of just becoming another annual holiday. She was part of something that would change history and humanity forever. So it's appropriate that she didn't write a book, she wrote a song. How are we to respond to all of this? In a little over a week, maybe most of us will be putting away our Christmas decorations and vowing to go on a diet, getting ready for New Year's celebrations. But we sang in our opening carol, let not the promised son remain a stranger. Many who celebrate Christmas this year will go into the new year allowing Jesus to remain a stranger, not giving him another thought until this time next year. 
Well, we are to respond to Jesus in the way that Jesus said we should respond to him. He said these words, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. To repent is to admit that I need this offspring just as much as Eve did, just as much as Mary did, just as much as anyone does. It's to say that God is right and I'm wrong and I need him to show mercy and grace towards me because without him, my sin cuts me off from God. And to believe is to hear and to take God's yes to the promise. His promise confirmed in Jesus. Jesus who walked my flesh, who died my death and who rose again so I can know forgiveness and newness of life as a child of God. It's faith is like Eve and Mary looking to Jesus, trusting him as my only hope. So how will you respond to Jesus this Christmas? Please do not let the promised son remain a stranger. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for your great love demonstrated to us in the sending of your son. Thank you that you have given all that you could possibly ever give. You have given yourself to us in him. We thank you for his birth, for his life, for his self-giving where he laid down his life for us at the cross. We thank you for his resurrection and the fact that he now is the king of heaven and earth and all things. And that one day he will return and will restore peace and justice and righteousness to this world. Father, we ask that you will enable us by your Holy Spirit to have the faith that you call us to have, to trust in Jesus alone, to put our full confidence in him. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.